it has also been called to our attention that, that we, we have a problem. Um, the ecclesiastical headquarters of, of the East Coast has let us know that we have um, unintendedly offended um, the papal authorities. And uh, it was called to our attention that we, we have not given deference where deference is due and honor where honor is due. And, and we, we need to repent of that. And so we want to uh, introduce uh, his eminence, Gail Jackson, in, in the appropriate manner. Uh, so if you all please stand with me and bow your heads. Fleeting, fleeting moment, I thought that uh, we'd settle down in this group. <clears throat> it used to be I always hated to come up because of the, all the punishment I would take on the way up. And I thought Mike had added a little flavor of culture, but I, they dipped back into the old days. And it's good being with you. I really appreciate the chance to be back with you. I must say on my arrival, which was uh, Thursday night, I didn't get up earlier because uh, we were celebrating my son's graduation from college. And it's his last day of class, and so I wanted to stay behind to see my last uh, child on the day he finished college, you know, to be, to be with him. So we didn't get up till 11. I didn't get in here till 11 o'clock, so I didn't wasn't with you. And I wanted to share with you the experience I had when I came in. I I I was rooming with the Pope. I had a special dispensation, and so Winston let me sleep in the general vicinity where he is. <laughs> when when I did arrive. Uh, I was greeted with the shock of uh, seeing Lynn Little just in his skivvies. Now, this, this is an emotional experience. I want you to know. When I left Atlanta, the banner headlines was that the Supreme Court had judged that same-sex harassment was legal. And after seeing Lynn, I understand why they did that. It's uh, good to be back with you, and uh, it's, it's always a treat to be with you. Uh, there's a lot of new faces, a lot of people I haven't known from the past, and a lot of old friends, and it's always good to see a lot of guys and the way the progress of the gospel has been in your life, and that's an incredible treat to me. To see that, to kind of bring you up to date on the Jackson family, um, I paid for my house effective January of this year. In February of this year, I paid for my cemetery lot. <laughs> my second house. Uh, in March, uh, my son graduated from college, and my wife is going to have surgery. In April, my daughter gets married. In April, we start another business year, and I'm having to reorganize the company. In May, I have my second grandchild, and in June, I die. <laughs> Got the whole thing scheduled out. So I'm uh, really pleased I could sandwich this time with you. 
on the way into the finish of the race. So it's been a busy time at the Jackson household. We've gone through a lot. And uh, would appreciate your prayers as we go down the line. Uh, for those of you who you were here last year, the young man I brought is the young man my daughter is marrying. Uh, I asked him to come with me and asked my daughter's permission. He had not asked her to marry him yet, but I, it, the sign was on the wall. So I asked him to come with me because he loves the mountains and things. He had never been into Colorado, so he came over with me. And after I had invited him, after I had invited him, Winston called me and said, Gail, I want you to speak on marriage. You've got to let that go and soak in a little bit. So we show up at the talk, and so while he's here, and the first time he's ever seen his future father-in-law teach, I teach on marriage, but he hasn't asked my daughter yet to marry. So we had some very interesting conversations following that. But we had some great times together, and uh, he is now going to marry my daughter come April 18th. So it's a, a good time lies ahead, man. We're going to have a good celebration. I uh, asked to speak on Ezekiel this year. And Ezekiel is the book I know you guys have waited years and years for me to speak on. How many here have read the book of Ezekiel? All right, hands down. How many enjoyed the book of Ezekiel? <laughs> it is a uh, difficult book to read and a book which you don't normally find your way into, but it's a book that I think that uh, we will have fun going through. It's going to be a different type of teaching than what you had. Uh, Bill's exposition on Judges was outstanding, and I, I stand humbly the mere fact he would say that I might be a mentor. If I am, I want to tell you that the teacher learned from the student, and he did a great job. And Walt's further expositions were very, I thought they were just outstanding. Uh, I'm going to come at it a little bit differently. I am shooting for uh, mediocrity. <laughs> but I'm going to do a fly-through Ezekiel, and I have a different set of objectives which I'll introduce to you in a moment. I'm going to need some readers at the start, but the book, there's so much in it that I'm going to just read some of the quotes myself that I have written down for myself as we go through the thing. Uh, who will help me on the, the reading up here close by? Hold your head down. Oh, TJ. Uh, Ezekiel 3, 17 through 19. I need a good reader for uh, chapter 36. Who will help me with chapter 36? All right, David, get ready. It's going to be 16 through 32. I needed Ezekiel 5, verse 9, Gib. Why don't you get that for me? And Ezekiel 14, verses 14 and 20. I can't see your name tag, sir. Laddie, would you get that one? Ezekiel 14, 14 through 20. Okay, let's get going. I've got an enormous amount of ground to cover. And uh, I probably won't get it covered, but I assure you your uh, future life with Jesus will not be in th threatened if I don't get through everything. The Ezekiel, the objective today is to introduce you to the book of Ezekiel and encourage you to read and enjoy the book. If I, I want to leave, I want to crack the book open. I want to take the shell off of it and show you what the, what's in the book. I want to look at it historically. I want to look at it. I want to exegesis some of the verses for you and kind of show you what's going on. So you might be able to get into it and understand. I'm going to tell you why you have trouble reading it. Um, we'll go over some of those things. Then the major emphasis is I want to discuss the ways of God that are demonstrated in the book of Ezekiel. The heartbeat of what we're always after is who is God? What, what are we doing and what is the ways of God? And I want to tell you what I learned. There's ten traits of God that I picked up in the book of Ezekiel. And I'm sure I've done just a very minor job. But I want to discuss as many of those ten as I can with you, and the implications of those ten truths. 
There's no saying today that goes that if the facts are if the facts are in your favor, argue the facts. If the law is in your favor, argue the law. If neither the facts or the law are in your favor, insult the other people. <laughs> if you have no quality in your presentation, the action the other side is use many, many media. And you're going to say multimedia. I'm going to write and I'm going to draw and I'm going to run and dance. And we're going to show some presentation up here. Okay, let's go with uh, slide one. All right. I want to show you this. This is going to really blow you. I can even point. Look at that. Does that blow you away? All right. Why? Why do we study the Old Testament in especially a book of like Ezekiel? And there's a number of reasons we do study it in an, and also a book like Ezekiel. Because one of the reasons we study the Old Testament is to gain hope. Paul calls us that we can gain hope in our study of the Old Testament. In the three reasons Walt gave, he did not mention that, but it's buried in the discussion he had that one reason we go into the Scripture is to gain a hope that is scripturally centered and not world-centered. To get a motivation that is God-motivated. And so we're seeking to understand that. Another question is, why in the world would we study a book like Ezekiel? Is Ezekiel a book that is a book of its time? It is a book only for the apocalyptic event of the destruction of Jerusalem. And it was written for those guys, but really doesn't have a lot of bearing on us. It's a nice book, and it's a good book, and it's a wonderful historical book, and it shows you a lot of the things about the prophecy of God. But does, is it a book that is only constrained to its time, or does it, is it a book that has great implications to you? And I suggest to you it has great implications. Next slide. Now, here are some of the reasons we study Ezekiel, why we study any book. In Ezekiel, a major emphasis that Ezekiel makes is to know who God is, not his God ways. He makes the emphatic point is that he is awakening the Jews that he is God. It's not, I want you to know me intimately. That's not his issue. He's trying to make them realize he's God and nobody else is. And no idol is and nothing else is. Now, most of our debates in this room, the discussion is who is God? His question with them is, do you even know that I am God? So he has numerous points. One, that he is and that we know his, that we know his ways. And we're going to talk about that. But I want to tell you, Ezekiel centers around this issue significantly. And that is that he is now, why do we have trouble with the book of Ezekiel? One of them is because the beginning is the wheels and the spinning devices and the supernatural experience of the Shekinah glory. Another one is because he prophesizes the second temple and we get caught up in the, the configuration of the temple and all that's going on. We have a struggle because in the second, in the millennium that he discusses the last part, he talks about the reintroduction of the sacrifices in the millennium. And we say to ourselves, what, is, what in the world is going on here? Because there's a lot to the book that kind of gets you turned upside down. I want to suggest to you that what we want to focus on is the ways of God and not get caught up in an interpretation on such things as the reinstitution of the sacrifices. Though I can give you some of the theological reasons they are there, I will not carry you into it because I myself are not 100% clear. On the issue. Secondly, understand that here is a man with a vocabulary in the Hebrew trying to record 
the witnessing of a supernatural event. So he's struggling with his vocabulary to even explain it to you in the first place. So let us not get caught up in that, and let's go into really what he is trying to accomplish. Next chat, next one. If you look at the history of the Bible, and take the whole Bible, I did this for another study, we can see when the different books were written. And why I did that is because I want you to note the large number of books that occurred between the kings and the fall of Israel. From the rise to great international prominence to the fall. And most of all the Old Testament is right in here. Give me the next slide, please. If we look at this in, in particular, these are, the major, these are the books that all occurred right in this period. And that is Zephaniah up through Lamentations. And all, that book, all these books describe the final days of Israel and Judah and their destruction and what went on. If we went back into our King study, the discussion by Walt yesterday was on Hezekiah. And because of Hezekiah's heart and because of Hezekiah's behavior, God said to Judah, you will fall in the hands of the Babylonians. You remember that discussion? And then after him, he had a son called Manasseh. And Manasseh was the worst king of all. And for 52 years, he reigned hell and destruction on Israel. He becomes converted in his after he is taken off to Assyria. And he comes back in, but he never restores the nation. He has a bad son, but after that is another guy called Josiah. Now I want you to know what God does with Josiah. Josiah's heart turns to God, and because his heart turns to God, God said, I will abate the destruction by the Babylonians and hold them off of you during your lifetime in the kingship. A man rescued the nation and postponed God's eventual deliverance into the Babylonian hands. After Josiah, it falls into some bad kings, and then Babylon comes across and destroys them. Has, uh, the, guys, the king that does it is a guy called Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar raids Israel three different times. In 605 B.C., he raids them, which is right over in here, and he takes off 50,000 people. And when he does, he takes off the prophet Daniel. And as he prophesies in the Hezekiah's time, he made eunuchs of these guys, and they were servants to the king. And so Daniel goes over on the first time. He reinstitutes the king, and the king turns on Nebuchadnezzar like an idiot. So Nebuchadnezzar goes down and destroys more of Judah. And this time he carries off 10,000 people. And the 10,000 he carries off this time, he carries off Ezekiel. Ezekiel goes back this time. So Ezekiel, and that is in the year 597 B.C., and he goes back and is therefore a prophet in exile. He is both a prophet and a priest talking from Babylonia about the fate of Judah and what is going to happen. Now what happens is that the people turn on Nebuchadnezzar for the third time. And this time God said, destruction will reign, Jerusalem will fall, the people have turned into sin, there is no way to save them, I will have Jerusalem totally destroyed. And the book of, of Ezekiel is the book prophesizing the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the complete destruction of the temple. And it's brought about by these historical events as they roll forward into time. He spent his time as an exilic prophet. He prophesied out of exile. And he also called himself a priest. All right now, as I go through the book, 
I'm going to track across the book, and I'm going to get into certain points about the book, and I'm going to take the ways of God, I'm going to extract them out, and we're going to talk about them. Are you with me? And I'm going to go over a book that is 50 pages long and 48 chapters in this period of time. So I'm going to skip along the top, but as we get along and we get certain attributes I want to get to, I will slow down and get that to you. Let's go. Next chart. What is Ezekiel's objective? He wants to prophesy to the Jewish exiles that God was going to take down all of Judah and the surrounding nations, and nothing can turn God from this mission. Now, guys, I want you to note that. I want you to note that. It is one of the few times ever in the Bible where God says there is no way back out of this. He said to Hezekiah, you're coming down. Josiah is a good guy. God says, we'll slow things down. Jonah goes up to Assyria. You remember that? I'm going to take the city down. Assyria repents and what happens? God abates the destruction of Assyria. God is always an indulging, long-suffering, caring God. But in Ezekiel, he says, there is no way out. You are coming down. And there is no way you can be saved. And we'll read the verse later, but he says, if you're Job, if it was Job, or if it was Daniel, or if it was Noah, all they would save was themselves. Now let's compare that. Kadesh Barnea. Who are the two guys who did right at Kadesh Barnea? All right. Who did they save? And their families. In this case, God says Noah can't even save his family. Job can't even save his family. Daniel cannot even save his family. They may save themselves because they're righteous, but that's all that's getting, getting reprieved. His second objective is to prophesy that God will rescue a remnant with an objective and with hope. He, this book, has an expanse from 592 B.C. to the millennium. The book is complicated because he traces on Jewish history. He talks about Jewish prophecy. He talks about the Jewish nation. He talks all the stuff that's involved with Jim. He goes all the way through that, and he goes into prophetic discussion of the eschatology of the millennium. He goes all the way out there. So it's a complicated book because it covers such great ground and touches such history and involves so much of you in the understanding of the book. But he says in this, he says in this, as God says all through the Bible, I will rescue a remnant and you will have hope. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. The third thing is he prophesies that God will restore Israel in the millennium, not only the temple, but the sacrifices and the ceremonies. That's worth discussing more, but we won't do that. Go on, next one. Now to do that, Tom, he uses seven methods of writing, and this is where it gets hairy on you. He uses seven different methods. He uses signs. He uses messages. He uses visions. He uses parables, lamentations, judgments, and promises. Now, what I want to tell you is he's making the same point over and over again, but he is constantly uh, he's doing it with different things. Now, I'm going to show you an overhead, and this is my outline of the book. Can you, can you see it? I don't care if you can read it in detail. I'm just going to make some points to you. Now, what I want to make a point to you is that he wants to start off and say, message of signs, proverbs, judgment, visions, I've got a moving chart. <laughs> Promises for and against Judah and Jerusalem. He starts off and he says, let me give you a sign. And he says, 
and the sign was that he, he went out and built a little town out of clay, out of the sand, and got all the people around and said, this is Jerusalem. See it? Yeah. And he destroyed it. That's a sign of what's going to happen. Then he laid on his right side for so many days, and he laid on his left side for so many days. And he says it signifies the destruction of what's going to go on. So he goes through a series of signs, and then he brings judgment. Then I want to say to you that after Ezekiel does this, he stops and he gives a promise that God is still going to rescue them. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to destroy you, but I'm going to rescue the remnant. And so he gives them a hope. Then he starts off in the diatribe of a vision and another vision and another vision and another vision. And then he stops and he says, but I want you to know I'm going to rescue the remnant. Now, guys, when I think about God and I think about the talks we've been gone through, we talk about the judgment, etc. I see a God that says, in who I am and what we're going to do, I must and I will destroy this. But I want you to know I love you. And I'm going to rescue you. And from that he said, I will rescue a remnant. And notice every indentation is he goes through the same message again. That All he does is for 24 chapters is tell him he's going to destroy them. But as he goes through it, he stops and gives them a promise to say at an end of a certain uh, discussion, I'm going to save the remnant and bring you back. And we'll discuss those promises in a moment. So why is it hard to read? Because it's not a straight line piece of logic. It's not like what Walt took Second uh, Corinthians 5 and went through. Or the study of uh, Gideon, as we just talked about a singular event. Here is a guy trying to make a prophetic point to the Jewish nation that you're coming down. And so he uses all kinds of methods and techniques to get their attention. It's hard to read because he's... He's going in and out of these different kind of techniques, but if you take the time to read it slowly and analyze it, it comes open to you. All right? Next chart. What are the key verses? What is? And I want to now start to analyze the book. Who had 36? Uh, David, you did. Everybody turned to Ezekiel 36. Yes. Fifteen through thirty-two. Dad, come. What did I chart do that I broke? I broke all that down. Oh yes. Okay. Here we go. Read. Uh, now we're going to do sixteen through thirty-two, and this is the key verses that sums the whole book up for you. And I want you to hear this. Read sixteen to twenty. 16. This is the discussion. This is God's view of Israel's problem. Okay. Then this further message came to me from the Lord, Son of Man. When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their evil deeds. To me, their conduct was as filthy as a bloody rag. They polluted the land with murder and by worshiping idols, so I poured out my fury on them. I scattered them to many lands to punish them for the evil way they had lived. But when they were scattered among the nations, they brought dishonor to my holy name. For the nations said, These are the people of the Lord, and he couldn't keep them safe in his own land. And I was concerned for my holy name, which had been dishonored by my people throughout the world. What is the problem? Disobedience, idolatry, dishonoring God, not only on the own land, but in the people that they're around. So much, so much so that God himself is upset. What is God's greatest concern? Listen carefully. God's greatest concern, verses 21 through 23. Then I was concerned for my holy name, which had been dishonored by my people throughout the world. Therefore, give the people of Israel this message from the Sovereign Lord. 
I am bringing you back again, but not because you deserve it. I'm doing it to protect my holy name, which you dishonored while you were scattered among the nations. I will show you how holy my great name is, the name you dishonored among the nations. And when I reveal my holiness through you before their very eyes, says the Sovereign Lord, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. What's his point, John? Okay, what is, what's his highest concern, John? His name. Is it their well-being? Is that his highest concern? Is it the salvation of the nation? Is that their highest concern? Is it, what, his name, what he's concerned about is his name has been besmirched. Guys, if you get the truth that moved me in my study in Ezekiel, is I'm a huge proponent as God is in control and has my best interest at heart. But I came to the conclusion that it's only when it serves God's name and the honoring of His name that ultimately my God is committed to His name and His honor. And until we come to grasp that, almost everything we do gets out of synchronous because everything we do becomes self-centered in what is best for me. And though God will bend great history to help us and support us, it will all come under the banner that He is glorified. He said, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for me. My name is the one that's in question. I'm not doing this to please you or to solve your problem. I'm doing it because my name has been besmirched and that won't go on. It was a sobering thought to me. And I'll try to get into that a little bit more as we go on. 24 through 31 is God's solution. If this is the case, then God's solution. Now, when you read this, everybody, listen to me, guys. Think like a Jew, Alan, and tell me what he hears. Go. For I will gather you up from all the nations and bring you home again to your land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart with new and right desires, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony hearts of sin and give you a new obedient heart, and I will put my spirit in you so you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. And you will live in Israel, the land I gave your ancestors long ago. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will cleanse you of your filthy behavior. I will give you good crops, and I will abolish famine in the land. Okay. What did they hear? What did he say the solution was? Don't, uh, the crops in the land is not the solution. That's a product. What was the solution? Just a second. That's one. What else? Clean them with water and... Spirit would be where? Would a Jew understand any of those? Is that Jewish? Does a Jewish understand the spirit in him? Does a Jewish understand cleansing by water and baptism? Does a Jew understand the new heart concept? Now, if my study of the Old Testament, I don't think he grasped that very well. I'm sorry. I didn't hear who said it. Of the blood, but why the water? I'm suggesting to you that he is showing us the new Savior of Christ. He's giving them the solution that's coming, and they don't understand it. This is not for this crowd. This is for the coming crowd, isn't it? Is this future or present? Future. future. And he tips off the coming Christ 
because he gives them those three things. Read this again, verse 25. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. Okay, the cleansing. Verse 26, uh, and I will give you a new heart with, uh, with new and right desires, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your old stony heart of sin and give you new obedient hearts. Okay. So the new heart concept. Do we hear that? Did we talk about that yesterday? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Did we talk about those things in regeneration? 20, uh, 28 and 30. No, no. That's the hope side. Give me Read 31. 31, okay. Uh, then you will remember your past sins and hate yourselves for all the evil things you did. But remember, says the Sovereign Lord, I am not doing this because you deserve it, O my people of Israel. You should be utterly ashamed of all you have done. Guys, four aspects. The cleansing, the new heart, the spirit in you, and repentance brought on out of shame. Now, shame is not a very popular phrase today. But it's a shame that it is a, a phrase that is consistent with the Scripture. So when you read Ezekiel, he's not only telling you what's happening, he's giving you a tip-off to the future. He's giving you a tip-off of what's coming, and we'll see a little bit more of that. Give me the next one, please. The table of uh, what I call called, and he's called to be a watchman. Twice he said, you'll be. I'm not going to take time to read that because of time, but he's called, Ezekiel's called out to be a watchman. A watchman, what was a watchman? You remember T.J.? Stood on the gate. What did he stand on the gate for? To watch it. His job was if they were coming to yell to the crowd. Now, if they didn't respond, that wasn't his problem. If he didn't call, who was at fault? And what God said was, if you don't carry the message you know to the people, their blood will be on your hands. If you carry the message, the blood is on their hands. The strategy of God, guys, from the Old Testament to today is he does his work through watchmen. I want you to grasp, you're a watchman. You are now responsible because you've heard the Word of God in truth from these men that's talked to you this weekend. You heard it in the dialogue about the Scriptures. You are now accountable for what you know. God's strategy from the beginning is always using people to get His job done. And that's true today, too. Yes, sir. Why don't you grab the mic at it? Well, one of the things that's a little confusing is a lot of what Ezekiel's saying has already happened. I mean, isn't he being a watchman after the fact? After the destruction? What has already happened? Well, I mean, hasn't the destruction of Jerusalem and some of his... I mean, the book was written over a period of, what, 30 years or so? Well, let's look at that in just a moment. I think that a study, you can either take a study that he is post-recording it or that he is prophesizing it. Okay. The view I have is that he prophesized it. And I'll show you that timing in just a moment. May I? Let's wait till we get to it. But I think I can show you that to you. All right? Next thing I want to do on that deal is the problem is disobedience and idolatry. We won't go read this. Who had 5-9? Read it real quickly again. Listen to this. And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. What did you just say was going to happen, somebody? What? I'm going to wreak havoc on you like what? Like I've never done before and I never do again. Do you, does that remind you of another promise? What was that? Noah. 
So if you know your history, you're seeing God saying, I'm, you have pushed me into a corner that I'm going to do something like I never wanted to do, and I'm going to do it now. There's no way out. It's coming down, but I'll never do this again. But I am going to bring you down. What are the results? Wrath and judgment and vengeance. And we'll talk about that more. How bad is it? It is so serious that the Shekinah glory leaves the temple. And he sees it leave. Bear with me. What is the Shekinah glory? Beg your pardon? Who said that? Presence of God. Okay. Where was it in the Jewish thank you? Where was it in the Jewish culture? Where is it in the temple? When did it, when did it arrive? When Solomon dedicated the temple. They had this great ceremony. And God says to show that I am here in this presence. That I am with you and I like what you've done with the temple. The Shekinah glory comes and goes into the temple. And the Shekinah glory, if I am not a, I'm not a master in theology, but is in context the Holy Spirit. The Shekinah glory moves into the temple. Now you hear it brought up every now and then. But in Ezekiel... He has a prophecy where he walks, he watches the Shekinah glory come out of the temple, go over to the gate, go out to the east side of town, and go out. What is on the east side of town of Jerusalem? Mount of Olives is on the east side of town. Do we have anybody else that's important to us that exited on the east side? Jesus. He sees the Shekinah glory leave. I am so disgusted, I'm out of here. If we jump forward, we see in the last chapters, 43, when he ended up, we see the Shekinah glory come back. Do you know where he comes back? He comes on the east side of town, back in through the gate and into the temple. Where's Christ coming back? East side of town, out through the Mount of Olives, and in. It is so rotten in Jerusalem that the Holy Spirit leaves. So rotten that no one can be delivered. Who has 14, 14, and 20? Thank you, laddie. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they could only save themselves by their righteousness, declares the Sovereign Lord. Or if I send wild beasts through that country... No, no, no. 14 and 20 only. Don't oh, read just, it between. Okay, and 20. And he repeats it again in 20. That's all he does, Right. As sure, Go ahead, sit, read it, please. Later. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither their son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. Okay, guys, what I want you to get is that we are dealing with inordinately bad times. The Holy Spirit has left. Nobody can save them. And God even states, I will show them no pity. And He says, I will not hear them no matter what they say. And he says, it's so bad, I'm never going to do it again. We're dealing with desperate times. <laughs> We're dealing with not a good time of year. God is really going to take Jerusalem apart. He finishes up the book and scatters all through the book the, the hope of the remnant and the return of the nation. So now you have, in essence, what Ezekiel is talking about. And he's trying to communicate to these people in Babylon... What's going to happen to their Jerusalem? Are you with me on that? He's trying to get it communicated that they're coming down. Now, any good Bible study would have what are the key sayings and the key words. Next chart. What are your key sayings are 
These are the ones I saw repeated over and over again. 65 times he uses the phrase, I'm going to do this so they'll know that I am God. Notice it is not that they will know who I am as God, but they'll recognize the fact that I am God. Guys, I want to tell you, we got a problem like that in the United States today. That they simply accept that He is God. And when we drift into idolatry in our life, we are saying, I'm not sure you are God. God is so hacked about this that almost everything He does is centered around that. And in 48 chapters, He says 65 different times, I'm doing this so they'll know I am God. He says He's the Son of Man 87 times. The Word of the Lord came 43. God, God swears an oath on His own promise 14 times. God swears against His own promise that He's going to do it. This is how intense the deal is. And six times He fell on His face. I always like to record those because anytime anybody gets around God, they keep, to hit, keep hitting the ground. Six times we see Ezekiel deck out on the deal. Next one. <laughs> key words. Here are the key words. Judgment's used 64 times. Wrath is used 70 times. Almost 70 times judgment and wrath is, is mentioned. He gathers 22 times. Notice in judgment and wrath, still the word gather is used 22 different times. Remnant six times. And the concept of no pity seven times. That's in the book of Ezekiel. This is how many times these words are used. The reason you do good word studies is if a guy uses a word over and over again, he get a tip off what's on his mind and what the book is about. <laughs> and I think we can pick up these are serious times. Next chart. All right. Now, Ezekiel is an interesting book. It's the only one I know that dates everything. For instance, we know that on December 19th, in the year of 592 B.C., he gets his first prophecy. He records it. He said, this is, when I, this is when I got the news on this. And every one of them, he dates what his prophecy was. He time stamps his prophecy. And so we can go through and see when he does all the prophecies. Next chart. Now, when he starts his prophecy, he starts in Jerusalem and looks for 24 chapters of the destruction. This is all before the siege. Before the siege chronologically. All of these are dated before the siege because the siege begins here. And when the siege begins, he's through prophesizing about Jerusalem. He dates them before the siege. I want to go back and make that point. That's the answer to your question. Now, he may have lied to us, but he claims that he made the prophecies before the siege. He then... Yeah, but this is not the destruction of Jerusalem. This is He's talking not about the exiles. What is he talking about? Of Jerusalem and the temple. Why is this so important? Because when Jerusalem goes, Israel goes. Would you agree? It was the crown jewel of everything. When the temple goes, the religion goes. Because it was the point. It had become almost uh, an idolatrous building into itself. Because that was the representation. They had a great God. They had the temple. And the temple gets totally leveled to the ground at this time. And, the, and so does Jerusalem. At this time, if I read my Bible right, and I may be wrong, he raptures to Jerusalem. <laughs> this is what it looks like. He, he's raptured into Jerusalem. And he witnesses the destruction of this time. And while he's there, he talks about uh, the destruction of other nations. And then it finishes up at 585 B.C. And he comes back to, uh, he starts his uh, prophecy again. And the last 15 years of his prophetic life, 
He prophesizes the millennium. Next chart. Can you see this down at the bottom? His prophecy lasts 22 years. He prophesies against Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem all before the siege, before the siege. And then he comes over and he does the foreign nations and he takes them out. Interesting, the word is wrath and judgment here. The word here in the New King James is vengeance. And the Hebrew word here is different than the Hebrew word here for judgment. I want to state that to you again. Wrath and judgment is used here. And the word over here is vengeance to the foreign nations. A different word. We're going to talk about that. Then in these land, these nations are destroyed. And a lot of these nations are destroyed because they thought it was funny what was happening to Jerusalem. God didn't like that. So they came down. And then they go in the, in the, uh, the millennium. Now this is an interesting chart because of the dates and the times and the chronology. And you can map it down historically and see what's going on. So it's an intriguing book of just seeing all of this unfold and what he's doing in his prophecy. Next chart. Now, I'm going to go over quickly ten truths I found about the ways of God, and then I'm going to go and open those up for you. Okay? I'm total lack of time, track of time. When am I supposed to be through? I can't remember. 1030, okay. I'm going to go about another 10 or 15 minutes. I'm going to get through one... One point, then we'll take a stand-up break, okay? Go. Next chart. Here's the first five. God uses to get His work done the watchman. God's plan, His God's way, has always been through people. God's way in the Old Testament and God's way in the New Testament is you and you and you and you and me to get His work done. Are we together? It is a consistent strategy that has never failed for us to convey the warning of the gospel message in what's out there. God is a God of wrath, a God of judgment, and a God of no pity. This is the God of Ezekiel. Question. Can the God of Ezekiel be the God of grace we know? And we've got to ask that question and we'll ask it. Third, God always gives us hope, a remnant. The Jesus prophecy is all through Ezekiel. I didn't even get into the pro- prophecy of Jesus. I just tipped off one of them. God is committed to His righteousness and His glory before anything else. Before anything else, the ultimate, highest, driving motivation to God is His glory and His honor. And i got to ask you a question. How in the world do I live with that? Because I thought I was His highest interest. Fifth point. God has a point of no return in His relationship with us. There is a point where you cannot recover from. And we'll talk about that. Next chart. Go. God's view of time... Or what is meant by soon is not our view. God is the one who will adjudicate fairness. The 18th chapter is said to God, you're not fair. Sound like a new argument to me. Like the argument we have today. And we'll go, we'll go into that. It is important to God that we know He is God. God laments the loss of all souls. Is the truth I found about it. And God's view of death is not my view of death. Okay, let's go. There's 13 judgments proclaimed in the book of Ezekiel. I want to talk about wrath and jealousy and anger and the point of no return. 
But before I do that, let me just point a couple things out again. From here up, it's wrath. From here to here, it is vengeance. Vengeance is getting even. Vengeance is giving you getting something you deserve. We need to understand God's view of wrath, and we'll talk about that. I want you to notice that uh, how much time he spends with Egypt. He spends three chapters with Egypt, which is interesting, and he spends three chapters with Tyre. Now, when you get into Tyre, you find out that he's speaking to Satan. Now, in the when he's talking to Tyre, historically, the city of Tyre is a great city of commerce. What else came out of Tyre and Joppa in that area? All the wood that was used to build a temple. And when Solomon did that, it established it as a great commercial city. And it becomes a very powerful city. And I've never been there, but I've seen, I've looked at pictures, and the coastline goes along, and Tyre, the little city, is like a little island that sits away from the main peninsula. Is that a true statement? That's what it looks like. You've never been up there. Is that correct? But Tyre was not only the little island, but it was the city on the shore. So God says to Tyre, you're coming down and you're going to really be destroyed. So much so, so much so, they'll do nothing but dry out fishnets on your rocks. That's all that's ever going to last. I'm going to take you out of sight. I'm so disgusted with you. But he said, by the way, I want to tell you something. you got to look for the bits in there. He says, Nebuchadnezzar won't get the job done. I'll get it done later. So Nebuchadnezzar comes down for 13 minutes. He sieges the city. He destroys the inner part of the city, but never can take the island down. Never can take the island down. Destroys the economy, but doesn't destroy the city. Nebuchadnezzar says, who cares? Who I'm leaving. So he leaves. He's destroyed everything anyway. And then Alexander the Great comes down, builds a moat across, not a moat, builds a bridge across there, and takes the city down like about 200 years later. So much so that all they ever did after that was do what? They dried nets on the rocks. What is the issue about wrath and vengeance? Truth one about God. God is a God of wrath and a God of vengeance and a God of anger and a jealous God who hates idolatry. This is a truth out of the book of Ezekiel. First, what does it mean? What does the word wrath and vengeance mean? Wrath in the book is an overflow of pent-up anger and with God, it's designed for our best interest. Wrath in the human being may not be designed for the, our best interest. But in God's perspective, it's designed for the recipient's best interest. And in God's economy, it's followed with a promise. Know with God's wrath that God always restores. And with His wrath, He always means to teach. He always means to correct. And He always means to sharpen our perspective. What does vengeance mean? It's to avenge, to have revenge, to get even, and with God only designed for your destruction. Never follow with a promise. Vengeance is never used with Israel. It's only used with the alien nations that have fought against God and warred against God. The word is never used otherwise. Wrath and judgment is always used on the other ones. Question one. Is God a God of wrath and vengeance and jealousy and anger today, or was that just an Old Testament concept? Now, I want to tell you, you can hear it taught that God is not a God of wrath today, that God's a God of grace and love. And we live in an era of great love and great mercy. 
But if Malachi is correct, and if Hebrews is correct, God says that He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that somehow we got to come to peace with the fact that God is a God of wrath today. Our struggle is, is that our God, to our benefit, is long-suffering. Question. Can God be a God of wrath and a God of love and a God of grace at the same time? Can He be all those things? If He can't do that, I would say, my children will have a lot of problems understanding I love them. Because they've seen me as a man of wrath, they've seen me a man of anger, and they've seen me a man of great mercy. Can our God be a God of grace and a God of wrath at the same time? Scripturally, God has no problem with that. We do as a people. Guys, when I first was a young man, 50 years ago, the church was legalistic and everything was what you did. Today, the church is all grace. And if you obey, it has little to do with anything. Just so it can sing and feel good. And I want to say neither one of them is accurate. We must live in the tension of both of them at the same time and appreciate the God of wrath is existing today. Question. Is God a God of wrath in the New Testament? And is it ever mentioned in the New Testament? In the Gospel messages, it's only used one time that I could find. And it's in Jesus talking about that if you receive me, you'll be saved. And if you don't, you're going to have God's wrath. The two books that's used in the New Testament extensively is in the book of Romans and the book of Revelation. Which is where you think you should find them. Because one of the end times and two of the doctrinal statement of salvation. Let me suggest to you that I think that wrath in the New Testament is the phrase chastisement. And the way we would deal with chastisement, God's view and His education on chastisement is His work of wrath with us. Chastise means to educate or train us by discipline or correction. As I thought about it, chastisement is God's wake-up call to alert us to the shortness of our time and the importance of eternal matters. Remember this. We need this reminder because God is always long-suffering. And because He is, we tend to drift. Is it hard to maintain an eternal perspective? In my corrupt little body, it is very hard. You put me in distress and tribulation, and my alertness scale goes out of the ceiling. Are you with me? And yet to perform your life, if I understand what Walt and what Bill were teaching and what the Bible teaches, we must struggle all the time to maintain an eternal perspective. And so how does God interact to do that with us? And I suggest to you it's through chastisement and tribulation and suffering, which is the economy of the New Testament. Let me give you some notes on chastisement and consequence to think about. Chastisement is God's consequence in the temporal for our drifting from Him into sin, into procrastination, and into ignoring who God is. Chastisement is a jerk. It's a wake-up from us moving away from Him. It's the consequences. Very few things do we have, temporal consequences, but we do in the sense of chastisement. Let me say to you, consequence, as was discussed last night, as a rule of God, and it is a theme of the Bible. No matter what the world is teaching you, let me say to you, there's a consequence and a judgment to how we live our life. 
There is a consequence eternally and temporally to how we live our life. If you learn to teach your children a rule that is both scriptural and a key to good living, teach them through your discipline, through the rule of consequence and personal responsibility, teach them that there is a consequence and they must be responsible. The day of the time out and don't spank your children is taking our children into, a, into an arena of no consequence. And you're stealing from them in their understanding of God. You're stealing from them in their ability to comprehend God. To survive in this life, you better sense responsibility and you better sense consequence or you'll never have your eye on the eternal. You will totally abandon your walk with God. Remember, consequence to us and consequence to our children is both security and assurance of God's love. I suggest to you, one way I know God loves me is there's consequence to the way I behave. You know one way I knew my dad loved me? It's because he hammered my body. He said, if you do this, you're going to get a hammer. And he did it. Now at that time, I didn't normally say, Larry, you really love me. <laughs> but in the long portrayal of my life, I want to say to you, one of the ways I knew his love was through his consequence. Because he did it to me. One way I had security of the relationship was because of the consequence. If in the, in the study of consequence in Hebrews, it talks of the comparison of a father to a son. And I'm, I'm saying to you guys, take that seriously because consequence is a key to the scriptural walk and a key to a successful walk in life. Truth two about God. Truth one was He's a God of wrath. Truth two is that God has a point of no return. We don't know where it is, but historically, God is, has a point where there is no way back in the relationship. Oh, question. Pick up the mic, please. I love it when Walt asks me questions. You talk about stark terror. <laughs> there's the judgment seat with Christ, and then there's Walt's question. He's getting even from last night. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sir. Okay, before we leave judgment, before we leave point one, I have a twofold question. On A through D, you said we have wrath, and we said that E through L, we have judgment. And we said vengeance. Vengeance, I mean. Thank you. Question one is, what is the relationship between these two words and justice? And question number two, in what category does M fall in? Okay. Uh, question one. The word is wrath and judgment used in 1 through D, Walt, and everybody else. But to understand the word, you have to look at everything God does with him. He says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring you down, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring it down. You deserve it. You're going to get it, but I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back into the relationship. So wrath always had a reconciliation. Wrath always had a teaching component. Wrath always had a reestablishment component. Now, in vengeance, which is the second word, I think that's the second part of the question, in E through L, there is no reconciliation. None. I am going to hammer you. Thank you. The discussion's over with. I'm not going to restore you. I'm not going to bring you back. I'm taking you out. If you study these nations, and I may be not totally right, when Joshua went into the promised land, God said, destroy all these nations. Right? You remember that? Don't leave anybody living. Do you remember that? Did Joshua do that? 
God did that. There's nothing left of these tribes. Historically, they're persona non grata. They are gone, excluding Egypt. And if you go into Egypt, you see that he said he's not going to take them completely out. He said he will bring them back. That is one that does have a, 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 a recall, which I'm not sure I understand. Now, on Gog and Magog, I don't know, Walt. I didn't think on that one that much. I didn't camp on that. I just know there's a judgment on them. Now, did I answer your question? Well, it was a good try anyway. I'll do it the way you do. Yes. <laughs> would you, would you rephrase the question? Would you rephrase the question? Now the question, uh, how did I miss? Tell me what I missed. Yeah. How is justice satisfied in A through D and how is justice satisfied in E through L? And what is the difference? Okay, I want to say the word justice was never used in Ezekiel. Never. You didn't see that word. He didn't say, my justice will be sought. He said this, you deserve it and you're going to get it. Unlike in something, you deserve it and I may give you a break. He said, you deserve it and you're going to get it. He says over and over again, you have this coming. But when he says it to his nation and to his people, he says, I'm going to give you a way back. And I'm going to restore you and I'm going to teach you. To these guys, he didn't say that. He said, you're gone. So what it has to do with justice, I did not find that discussed in Ezekiel. Could I extrapolate? Is that what your question is? My question is, as you worked your way through the material, did you or Ezekiel ever entertain the question of how justice applies to those judgments? <laughs> Did Ezekiel have me or Ezekiel? That's, figured, that's pretty high cotton, sir. I figured the two of you were working together. <laughs> let me say, let me say this from my viewpoint. Justice says you get what you have coming to you. I know you've done a lot of study on this. Would you agree or disagree with that statement? A through L, every one of them, he says you get what you have coming to you. A through D, he says, and I'm going to restore you. And it's to teach you. And you're to understand your shame from what I've done to you. And you're to repent. I'm helping you. But he said, you're getting what you deserve. It exists in both. Hmm? So it exists in both. Yes. In, in the sense of, are they getting what they deserve? The answer is, the answer is in Ezekiel, he says, you're getting exactly... What you deserve. Yes, sir. Can you get the mic? They want you to have the mic. Question on the restoration. If God is dest destroying an entire people, really not leaving anybody behind, what is left to restore? Well, from here down, he doesn't say he's going to restore them. He says they're gone other than Egypt. And historically, these people disappear. Okay. Here, he destroys them, but he says, I'm going to remain, leave a remnant. And if, if you study the Scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it is a story of the remnant. It is always a story of the remnant. Would we all agree with that? It's always the concept of the remnant. And he reestablishes the remnant again in this position. Are you with me? Let me make my next point, may I? And then we can ask questions. Some more. Is that alright? Because I want to make this last point. Historically, God has a point where there is no way back in the relationship. A Kadesh Barnea 
when they made the fatal error, do you remember the fatal error? They decided not to go in the promised land. God says, it's over with you. You have no other choice. Oh, no, no, they said. And they ran down and got killed. You remember that? And God says, okay, for 40 years, you're going to wander the desert. And for 40 years, as Walt observed, Moses became a great funeral director. That's all he did for the next 40 years, bury people. Moses struck the rock. And then all of a sudden, God said, that's enough. You're not going to the promised land. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> Moses made lots of mistakes. God said, that's enough. No more. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Saul, after he gave the sacrifices on the altar, he had done other things, but God said, that's enough. You're not going to be king anymore. I'm taking the spirit away from you. I'm going to invade you with an evil spirit. You're out of there. I'm going to appoint another king. What was the breaking point, I asked? And I can't find it. But there was a breaking point, and there was no way to recover. Ahab's a bad guy. But then Ahab, through his wife, steals the vineyard, and God says, that's it. You're gone, dead, it's over with. No way you can get redeemed. Are you with me? I don't know what that dividing line was. But there was a point when God said, that's it. We're not going any further in this discussion. Ananias and Sapphira. That wasn't that such a bad deal. They lied to the council. But God said, no, let him go. You're dead. The believers in communion in 1 Corinthians 11, some were dying. Guys, I want to say to you, we learn that there is a point of no return with the believers and the non-believers with God. There is a point where He says, that is enough. And there is no way back. It's like a trap door. You go through a trap door and you go straight down and out of sight. Let me finish and you get the question. How do we know where that trap door is? The answer is, we don't. Do not try God. That's the answer. For those who are not believers, how do you know where it is that God hardens His heart so that you will always turn away? The answer is, I don't know. Don't try God. The Bible says that you are without excuse now, today, and in eternity. God may lament that you that you turned Him down, as He did about Satan in Sire. He said, I'm sorry you did it. You had everything. You were beautiful. You had grounds. You had everything. And you turned me down. I lament that you did it, but that won't save you. And I'm sorry you did it, but you're going to hell. The days are short, and your days are numbered. Don't try God. Today, take the lesson in Ezekiel in the Bibles seriously. If you have unconfessed sins, if you have anger or idolatry or jealousies or coveting or pettiness or hate or distrust among yourself, among the brothers, among yourself, repent of that and get it away from you. Don't try God. Be before the throne begging for God's mercy in the blood of Christ to the believers. Don't do that. To those who are not believers, who Joe appealed to last night to thinking about where you are with Christ, your days are numbers. I don't know where they are. But if you've not trusted God and you have a sense that you should trust Him, don't put it off. Because just like Ahab, there was a day when he said there's just no more ways in. Hardening your heart, you're out of here. As he did to Pharaoh. God is a God of love and God is a God of grace. But God is a God of wrath.
And God is a God that says, enough is enough. Don't play with God. Questions? Yes, Bill. We'll get to you in just a second, Bill. Can you do the mic? Can you do the mic, please? Um, on, on that issue of justice, one of the things that strikes me is because God is always just, we, don't, we are not always upset with the fact that he is just, but that he may choose to exercise grace in some life other than our own. So that if God chooses to uh, give me what I deserve, and you and I have done the same thing, and God shows you grace, mercy, yeah. mercy, I am still getting what I deserve. God, by by His extension of mercy to you, He is not being less just with me. I am getting what I deserve and he is freeing you from receiving what you deserve. That's his sovereign choice and he always maintains his justness. If I may elaborate on that just so slightly, Bill. I got events in my life, guys, I want to tell you, I deserve a lot worse than I've gotten. I, I want to tell you, there's a couple of things where my fingers ought to be cut off. But God's grace has not made me Accept that judgment in this time. But I want to say to you, in eternity, I'll review that with God. And I know guys who've done a lot less that had their head handed to them. Somehow that's in God's economy. And His grace is no less to them than it is to me. We must understand the wrath of God is in our best interest. It's His love and His security He's giving us. He's trying to correct us. Yes, sir, you've been trying to ask a question. We need to hold the mic up. Yes, sir, go. All right, I agree with you and couldn't agree with you more that historically and throughout the entire scriptures, God's very own people reach a point where there is no way back. Absolutely. How does that wash in the idea of once saved, always saved? It's putting together the tension again that Walt answered those wonderful and extensive elaborations with the answer yes. <laughs> but let me say to you, God, we're going to see in a moment that God laments somebody. And we said that guy, <clears throat> God was not going to say. But he laments that he turned him down. That he turned him down. I say to myself, he turned him down. Now, how does that fit in with election? I do not know. But let me say to you this, that even though God elected you, those who are not elected are responsible for their own problem. Even though God may have elected you to salvation, those who are not elected are still accountable before God for the choice they made. Now, I don't want to go into all the theology of that, because I'm not sure I'm eloquent enough to discuss it. But let me say to you, just one, if I may, and I don't want to go too far in this, that we picture God sitting here saying, uh, I'll take him uh, out of here. And this guy's okay, this guy's okay. Boop, get those five, get them out of here, those two. That's not the picture in the Scripture. The picture in the Scripture is God says, I love you, 
And in unison, we say to God, we hate you. And we're going to run like the Dickens to get away from you. And God, in His great mercy and grace, says, I'm going to get that guy. Whoop, he's almost out. I got him. And I got him. It is not the paradigm of rejection and hate. It's the paradigm of love and reception. Theology is over with. Any other questions? I don't know. That's as best I know how to explain it. You said you didn't know where the point that point was of no return. Uh, just off the top of my head from what we read this morning, it would seem to us, to me as a Christian, that could possibly be that if I continue in willful sin to the point that I dishonor his name and he just says enough is enough. And I don't know. Let me say this. Because the honoring of yeah. his name seems to be an important issue here. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Let me say to you that there is a commandment for we as men to be morally pure. And you know what we do? We push the boundary as far as we can. How close can I get without getting too close? I want to suggest to you, you're better off if you get back away from the line. And quit playing with it. Don't play with God. We're going to shut this down just a moment. I'm going to take two more questions. Is that fair enough? Yes. Can I have them both? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I cut you out, Mike. I didn't mean to do that. We'll one question about justice. It would seem to me, if I understand the, the definition, that God's judgment was the justice. Could I be right on that? In the fact that he said his judgment is you deserve what you're getting ready to get. That's the justice. That is, if I understand the word justice. Uh, the second, second one that I'm not sure I can articulate this, but somewhere in Scripture, and I don't remember exactly where it says that God's able to judge the thought and intentions of our heart. And at some point, He does give up on us. And we can't understand where that point is, and it seems to be different with everyone. And it makes no sense. We don't find a pattern in it. But I Let me wonder, just say, I think one of the keys... Is Walt's teaching on willful sin yep. is a very sobering teaching. I, I, and I think I we've got to be ta- we've got to take... Excuse me, if I interrupted your point, I didn't mean to interrupt your no, point. I, I'm just wondering if that isn't... Oh. God knows when we've crossed that line that you've referenced. Yeah. I think it's point of glory and honor, and I think the point of willful sin, there's a point where we say, I don't care, there's consequences, and there's a point where God says, that's it. Now, the question I should have had from the floor is, how can he give up on a believer? What does it mean to me? And I say, how about lost opportunity? Huh? I tell you, that's one thing you can do. They just take you out of the picture. Remember this. Uzziah did not die when he dropped out of the Bible. Who's Uzziah? One of the great, great kings. And he goes in the Holy of Holies, reaches for the altar, and God gives him leprosy. Historically, we know he lived a bunch more years. But not in the Bible. He was out of there. Boing, he was gone. It was all, that's all we wrote for you, Uzziah. The Assyrian history has him. Judaic history does not have him. Let us be men that God writes about till the day we go to heaven. Stay away from the dumb line. Don't mess with God. It's just not a good thing to do. Jack, you were trying to ask a question. Did I understand you to say in chapter 36, verse 22, um, could preclude us from experiencing uh, 
God acting in our best interest? I'm saying that our best interest have, must be seen in light of that truth, and I'll discuss that at the end. Thank you. Yes, Jack. Okay, let's take a five-minute stand-up.